friends in North Carolina. Uh, we send greetings from our friends in Western Carolina, in Asheville, beautiful country, and uh, seeing some friends who we've known for, uh, in my case, 20 years, Kate, maybe 30 years or so, uh, some uh, the wife of this family and Kate were in a high school mentoring group together uh, when they were both in high school. And so uh, some of those, those bonds and friendships go on for a long, long time. So it's good to make those connections and to see each other again. Well, we opened a new series on the book of John as we approach the Advent seri- season. And so we're going to continue on reading John chapter 1. We're going to begin with verse 19 and we're going to read all the way through verse 28. This is God's word. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we enter into this new year, we pray that you would ground us in the unchangeable truth of your scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we all come from different places with different worries and concerns, different questions on our minds and weighing on our hearts. We pray, Lord God, that you would answer them through the word who has been made flesh and who continues to dwell among us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord God, that you would speak, for we, your servants, listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I read a story about a German philosopher named Arthur Schopenhauer. To the best of my ability to suss this out and do some detective work, I think it's not a true story, but it's a good story, so here it goes. Arthur Schopenhauer was wandering the streets of Berlin, pondering the meaning of life as German philosophers are wont to do, when suddenly he grew very tired. He was near a park, and he saw a park bench, so he decided to sit down and take a little bit of a nap. Well, that little nap quickly became a deep sleep as he laid down and slept there in the park. It happens. I can't tell you how often we're chasing German philosophers off our front yard who have fallen asleep there. Nietzsche, Heidegger, Freud, Schleiermacher, if I had a schnitzel... 
for every single German philosopher that we had to roust from our front yard, I could buy a 1972 Opel Commodore. But I digress. So, Schopenhauer's laying there on that park bench when a policeman approaches him. He rouses him, wakes him up, and says, Who are you, and why are you here? And Schopenhauer, filled with existential angst, says, I wish to God I knew. Now, this is, of course, an apocryphal story, but the policeman's questions are actually two of the most important questions that we can ever face in life. Who are you, and why are you here? In the story, Schopenhauer didn't know, and frankly, he's not alone. Many of us have no idea who we are and why we're here. Every new year, we try to reinvent ourselves with new goals and resolutions, but often the whole process of trying to turn over a new leaf is just a thinly veiled attempt to avoid asking those big questions those meaning-of-life questions that keep us up in the middle of the night. I don't know about you, but for me, it's a lot easier to cut carbs and count push-ups than it is to wrestle with eternal questions about the meaning of our existence. And so, most of the time, we live with lingering doubts and insecurities. Because we simply can't answer or refuse to answer the question put to John the Baptist in verse 19. Who are you? Who are we? And why are we here? This morning we're going to get some surprising answers from a rather surprising source. A rather strange man by the name of John the Baptist. A man who lived most of his life in the wilderness. A man who ate locusts and wild honey. A man who wore a coat made of camel's hair. A man who wore thin sandals on his feet, tied to his feet with even thinner straps of leather. A man who was related by blood to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They were cousins. A man who was, in many ways, the last Old Testament prophet. A man who began worshiping Jesus before both of them were even born. If you were with us during the Advent season, you'll know that we spent the four weeks of Advent walking through the opening 18 verses of the Gospel according to John. The Apostle John, not to be confused with John the Baptist, was probably Jesus' best friend. He's known in the scriptures as the disciple who Jesus loved. He was the youngest of the apostles and the only apostle who died a natural death. All the other apostles were martyred or murdered for their faith in Jesus Christ. Interestingly, John predicted the martyrdom of all the apostles and that John would outlive the rest of the apostles. We'll learn about that in John chapter 21, approximately 276 weeks from now. But hey, who's counting? 
The Apostle Paul wrote five books in the, in the New Testament. He wrote this gospel. He wrote three letters or epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote the book of Revelation, which is often called the Apocalypse of John. The word apocalypse in Greek is roughly translated revelation, which is why we call it the book of Revelation. In artistic depictions of the Apostle John, he's often depicted either with an eagle or as an eagle. If you look at the front cover of the bulletin this morning, you'll see John with an eagle right between his chest and the gospel that he's holding. Interestingly, the book that he's holding is the gospel according to John, and the book is, is turned to the opening verses of John. You'll read in Latin, if you're a Latin reader, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you travel to some of the great cathedrals of Europe, you'll often see four living creatures carved into the stonework. One of those creatures is always an eagle, and that eagle always represents the Apostle John. Why? Because, as the legend goes, eagles are the only birds who can fly directly into the sun without being blinded. In a similar way, the Apostle John was one of the few men on earth who could stare directly at the Son of God, S-O-N, without being blinded by his glory and grace. So that's what we're going to do during this series. We're going to attempt to stare directly into the Son, Jesus, the Son of God. And hopefully, we won't be blinded by the light of his glory. Hopefully, the light of God's glory and grace will enlighten us, enabling us to see who we really are and why we're really here. Which takes us back to the question that is asked of John in verse 19. Who are you? Who are you, John the Baptist? Who are you, Joel the Presbyterian? Who are you, students, as you return back to school with classes and tests and teachers and friendships? Who are you, parents and grandparents, as you seek to set a godly example for your kids and grandkids in 2023? Who are you, entrepreneurs? Who are you, single moms? Who are you, retirees? Do you know? We have a pretty simple outline this morning. First, John the Baptist will tell us who he's not. And second, John the Baptist will tell us who he is. His denials come in verses 19 through 21, and his affirmations come in verses 22 through 28. Are you ready? Let's take a closer look. We begin our journey with the question of who we are not. Now, at first, that might seem like a strange, sort of counterintuitive way to begin, but it's a very important step in the process of self-discovery. You'll never know who you really are until you know who you're not. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John the Baptist 
when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. In other words, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Savior. And neither am I, and neither are you. There's only one Jesus, there's only one Messiah, there's only one King, and it's not us. Now, in the immediate context, the question was asked about uh, being the Messiah for very specific reasons. During the first century, the nation of Israel was a nation that was occupied by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire imposed strict, uh, heavy, burdensome taxes on the people. They restricted people's freedoms. I wonder what that's like. And the people of Israel were getting sick and tired of it all. They knew that God would send a Messiah someday, a king, an anointed one, who would uh, uh, unleash the power of God in the nation of Israel, making Jerusalem once again the city of God that God had always intended it to be. By driving out the Romans in a bloody battle for political control over the region. Now, they were kind of right but they were also mostly wrong. Jesus was a king. He was the Messiah. He did came, come to save his people from their sins, but he wasn't the kind of king that the people were expecting. He came as a humble king. He came as a servant king. A king who came not to shed the blood of his enemies, but to allow his blood to be shed by his enemies. In other words, Jesus came as a conquering king, but he came to conquer through losing. Through his sacrificial death on the cross, he not only uh, uh, liberated one small city, the city of Jerusalem, or one small nation, the nation of Israel, he came to liberate the entirety of humanity, driving out not only the Romans, but sin and death and hell forever. Now, it's within that context of messianic expectations that the religious leaders asked John, are you the Christ? Are you the Savior? Are you going to restore the nation of Israel? Are you going to fix everything that's broken in the world? And John's answer, which should be our answer as well, is no. I am not the Christ. Again, you need to know that there is a king. And you need to know that that king is not you. It's Jesus. Jesus is the only Messiah. Jesus is the only king. That means you are not responsible for fixing everything that's broken in the world. You are not responsible for saving yourself. You are not responsible for saving other people. You are not responsible for fixing your husband. You are not res responsible for fixing your wife or your kids or your grandkids. You are not responsible for fixing human trafficking. 
or climate change or abortion or drug abuse or the housing crisis or all the confusion we see in the world about gender and sexuality. Yes, we can think about these things. We can talk about these things. We can pray about these things. We can give generously to support God's causes in the world. Yes, of course. We can do our best to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to love and to learn and to listen. But it's not healthy and it's not helpful to feel personally responsible for fixing or preventing everything that is wrong or could possibly go wrong in the world. Sometimes the people that we love just make bad choices. And and, and it's hard And we have to pray for them, but we can't stop them from sinning. Sometimes we make bad choices, and all we can do is repent and ask God to forgive us because we can't stop ourselves from sinning. Sometimes all the pipes freeze, even in Florida, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Why? Because while Jesus absolutely can and absolutely will fix everything that is broken in the world someday, either in this life or in the life to come, we cannot prevent all the bad things from happening because we are not Jesus. And that's good news. The good news is we don't have to be one Jesus is more than enough to make all the sad things come true good will eventually defeat evil not because i'm the king or you're the king but because jesus is the christ the messiah the king of kings and the lord of lords now that probably should have ended the interrogation but the religious leaders were not quite finished with john verse 21 and they asked him what then Are are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, they were probably thinking about a verse in the Old Testament, Malachi 4, verse 5, where we read, Behold, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, in John's day, some of the religious leaders took that prophecy very, very literally. They were expecting Elijah, one of the great Old Testament prophets who never died, to come down back to earth in a physical body to, as a prelude to Judgment Day and the restoration of all things. Now, putting aside the fact that John the Baptist was a type of Elijah and therefore the fulfillment of this prophecy, the point that he's making is, I am not literally Elijah. I did not literally descend from heaven. I am not a miracle worker like Elijah was. Guess what? Neither are we. We are not miracle workers. We did not come down from the clouds of heaven. I came from Bakersfield, California, which is a lot closer to the other place. If you ever go there, it's, uh, it's very, very hot there. 
Elijah could call down fire from heaven on the prophets of Baal. Most of the time, I have a hard time getting my gas fireplace to to start up in the right way. Elijah could raise other people from the dead. Sometimes I can't raise myself from the bed. We all have limitations, and frankly, the older that we get, the more limitations that we have. But that's okay. Because as Christians, when we're weak, that's when we're strong. As Christians, the more willing we are to acknowledge our weakness, the more likely we are to rely on God's strength. In fact, in God's economy, in God's kingdom, God specifically chooses weak, unimpressive people. People like John the Baptist, people like us, so that when things go well... When people get saved, when people get healed, when prayers are answered, God gets all the credit and all the glory, which is exactly what he deserves. The world says only the strong survive. But John the Baptist is saying, I am not strong. I am not Elijah. I am not a miracle worker. But that's okay. Because Jesus is, and he's here, and I'm with him, I'm with Jesus. If you want to change the world in 2023, if you want to change your life in 2023, it's not about how strong you are, it's about how strong God is. You have to rely on God's strength, which is ironically how Elijah became Elijah. He relied on God's strength. In the book of James, James, who's the earthly brother of Jesus Christ, says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's like us in every way. But what? What's the difference? But he prayed. He prayed. Elijah, a man with a nature like ours, harnessed and experienced the power of God through prayer. And because he was weak, because he acknowledged his utter and total dependence upon the living God, Elijah changed the world through prayer. One last denial, third one. Number one, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Savior, not the King. Number two, I'm not Elijah, I do not have supernatural strength, I'm not a miracle worker, I didn't come from heaven, I came from Bakersfield. Verse 21, and they asked him, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, this is probably beside the point, but if you read this uh, scene closely, well, a little interesting fact is that the, initially the people who are religious ask questions that are very short, and John gives relatively long answers, but as we proceed, uh, their questions get shorter, or get longer, and the answers get shorter. So by the end, he just one syllable, no. Are you the prophet? No. It's like he's sort of uh, dismissing a six-year-old who wants to keep talking when it's bedtime. No, I'm not, uh, I'm not the Christ, not Elijah, not the prophet, just no. So, who's the prophet? 
Well, short answer, Jesus. Longer answer takes us to Deuteronomy 18. Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 that God would raise up an all-knowing prophet, someone who is greater than Moses, who would reveal all the mysteries of God. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, we read, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to to them all that I have commanded him. And the religious leaders are coming out to the wilderness where John is preaching and teaching and baptizing, and they're asking them, is that you, John? Are you the prophet that Moses was talking about? Are you all-knowing? Do you speak the very words of God? Do you have all of the answers to life's most perplexing questions? And John's answer, one word, one syllable, one sentence, no. And guess what? Neither do we. There are many things in life and in the Bible, frankly, that are mysterious, that are somewhat confusing, that are a bit perplexing. We don't have all the answers. Now, we do have some answers, but even as Christians, we simply do not know everything that God knows. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul was a very learned man. If anyone on earth could have possibly claimed that I have all the answers, it would be the Apostle Paul. But he doesn't claim that. Listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now, I know in part. Then... When Jesus comes back, when Jesus makes all things new, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Someday, we'll know. Someday, all of the the answers to all of our questions will be answered. Until then, we wrestle with the uncertainties and the mysteries. Holding on to God with both hands saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And that's what the, the word Israel means. Israel means he wrestles with God. He wrestles with the mystery. He wrestles with the uncertainty. Sometimes trusting God feels as easy as holding your father's hand. And at other times, trusting God feels as hard as holding on to a wild bull who simply does not want to be held. But we hold on, not because we know, but because we have been fully known. That's who John the Baptist wasn't. He wasn't Christ. He wasn't Elijah. He wasn't the prophet. So who was he? And who are we? Well, two things. He was uh, an exile and he was an evangelist. Verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 
Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. John the Baptist lived as an exile in the wilderness. He was an outsider. He was an outcast. He lived in Bethany across the Jordan, which was basically in the middle of nowhere. And so do we. Now, when I say that we live in the middle of nowhere, when I say that we're exiles, when I say we live in the wilderness, I'm not talking about Pensacola. I'm not talking about Cantonment or Milton or Pace or Century. I'm talking about this world. This world, as wonderful as it can be at times, and there are many good things in this world. God created this world. He said it it is good. And yet, this world is not our home. We're sojourners here. We're campers here. We sleep in in tents and sleeping bags. We're always on the move, just like Jesus, who tabernacled among us. As residents of the wilderness, we need to know that there are snakes and scorpions and alligators out there, and not just in Gainesville. They're all over the place. Like Jesus, who is tempted in the wilderness, we are tempted by Satan in our wilderness. Satan offers us health and wealth and prosperity and happiness in exchange for our souls. This could all be yours if you'll simply bow down and worship me. It's frankly an absurd offer, but somehow absurdity turns into plausibility in the wilderness. It's called a mirage. In the wilderness, our minds play tricks on us, and we believe the lies that this world has to offer us. So how do we get out? If we, like John, are in the wilderness, how do we get out of the wilderness? Well, Jesus went into the wilderness to get John. We'll see that next week. And John is down by the water. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's baptizing people. And then here comes Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How does he do it? Well, he did it then the way he still does it now. Jesus became an exile in order to bring us back home to the city of God. You remember the scene in which Jesus is crucified. Again, we'll study that later on in the Gospel of John. When Jesus is crucified, they take him not in the city, but outside the city to be crucified on a place, Golgotha, the place of the skull, that was essentially the city dump, the place where the people put their trash, their their refuse. That's where he died. But then if you fast forward to the end, John's last writings in the book of Revelation, we see the city coming down from God, the new Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus was exiled 
in order to bring us back home to God. So we could have a forever home with God in his kingdom. So John is in exile. He acknowledges this world is not my home, but that's not all he was. He was also an evangelist. John didn't say, well, I'm out in the wilderness here. I'm a little bit outnumbered. I better keep quiet. I better not say anything. I better not offend anyone. I better not say anything that's going to get me in trouble with the powers that be. No, he cried out, make straight the way of the Lord. He was calling everyone everywhere to believe in Jesus. That's our calling too. We're evangelists. The greatest thing that you can accomplish in 2023 is to tell someone, anyone, about Jesus. Maybe that's, that's a friend or a family member. Maybe that's one of your neighbors. Maybe that's a kid at school. Whoever it is, if you need help with that, I'll talk to you about it. Pastor Dave can talk to you about it. Pastor Sean. We will put you in places where you don't even have to fish for men. The fish jump in the boat. They'll ask you about Jesus. Why are you here? Jesus? Oh, well, tell me about him. It happens. Some of you might be objecting or thinking, well, I don't know, Pastor Joel, evangelism is a little bit scary for me. I grew up in the Christian church. All my friends are Christians. All my neighbors are Christians. Everybody in my school is a Christian. I, I don't even, who am I supposed to evangelize? Like my, my cats, my dogs? Do I need to go to another country where people don't know Jesus to be a missionary? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me answer your question with a question which is kind of an annoying thing that pastors do, but just kind of, kind of follow me here, okay? Who was John the Baptist baptizing? Pagans? Idolaters? Atheists? Agnostics? No, he was baptizing religious people. He was baptizing people who knew the Old Testament. He was baptizing people who wanted to have a relationship with God, the Israelites. Why? Because religious people, people like you, people like me, need the gospel just as much as irreligious people do. Maybe more. We're a little bit used to it. We all need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all need to remember that we are saved by grace through faith in him. The gospel and Jesus and the story of what he did isn't just the ABCs of Christianity, kind of first day stuff you know, where you get your syllabus and here you go and here's the gospel. Now we're going to move on to something else. No, not the ABCs. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. It's the whole thing. One of my resolutions this year, inspired by the great theologian Benjamin Warfield, is to say basically the same thing in every sermon that I preach this year. I'm just going to tell you about Jesus over and over and over again. If I'm preaching in the Old Testament, if I'm preaching in the New Testament, I'm going to show you who Jesus is, because 
by seeing the light of the world, we see ourselves more clearly, we see our neighbors more clearly, it changes our hearts, it changes our church, it changes our city, and I believe the gospel has the power to change the world. Everyone everywhere. Not, not just the people out there, but our kids and our grandkids and our friends and our neighbor. We all need Jesus. Some of you, like Arthur Schopenhauer, woke up this morning on the park bench. And you're a little bit sore, and your back is a little bit out of sorts. And you're wondering to yourself, who am I? Why am I here? I wish to God that I knew. And the Holy Spirit is telling you this morning, you are not Jesus You are not the all-powerful prophet Elijah. You are not the prophet greater than Moses, the one who has insight into all things. You are an exile. This world is not your home. And because this world is not your home, you are an evangelist. You have the great calling of telling everyone everywhere the message of Jesus and his love. We are all voices crying out in the wilderness. Make straight a path for our Lord. We are nothing. He is everything. He who is everything became nothing so that we might become everything. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And that's our hope, not only for 2023, but always. It has been and will be until Jesus comes again. Let's go to God in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for John the Baptist, this humble servant of a man who lived not to glorify himself, but to glorify you, Lord Jesus. I pray that we would live to glorify you, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would help us set aside anything that we've been living with, these sins that we've grown uh, accustomed to in the past years. May we lay them aside, Lord Jesus, so that we might have you and you alone. Lord, we know that It's not as simple as saying those words. We are not our own saviors. We are not our own kings. We don't have the power and the knowledge to to conquer the enemies that you already conquered on the cross. And praise you, Lord God, that we don't need to. I pray that we would rest in your love and that you would energize us by the power of your spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name.